0: Bacteria have the capacity to repair itself. The simple DNA that they have, if a virus enters the bacteria's cell, they recognize it as abnormal and they have an enzyme like a pair of scissors that can snip out a segment which is foreign to them and then replace it with normal genetic material. So that's now being applied to human cells, both in in the cancer research area for obvious reasons, in embryos as well. The, The group in China, there's a group in China who... Eighteen months ago, published the first human embryos for this to be done to get rid of thalassemia. A wise man once said. A wise man once said. The best way to predict the future is to create it. You're about to experience a next level show. Scientists,
1: entrepreneurs. Thought Leaders, you're listening to the Future of Humanity Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Future of Humanity Podcast. This is the show where we talk with thought leaders, scientists and experts all about what is coming for humanity. Now, today we have a absolutely fascinating episode all about fertility and in vitro fertilization, commonly known as IVF. I'll admit, as a 32-year-old male... I have very limited knowledge about this as I personally have not tried to have kids. Uh, so, this is was a very kind of foreign topic for me. However, what I learned in my research and in this episode and the discussion with our expert was truly fascinating and eye-opening for me in very many ways. So, I highly encourage everyone, no matter your age, sex or location, that you listen To this episode. So, who am I joined in this episode to discuss this topic? I'm joined by Professor Michael Chapman, who is one of Australia's most highly profiled and respected fertility specialists. He's actually a busy clinician, so he's out there doing it. In fact, he actually came directly from a surgery just before we recorded the episode. He's also personally been involved in fertility care, resulting in over 3,000 pregnancies personally. He is heavily involved in training and education at all levels and is an examiner for the Certificate in Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility for the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, of which he is a fellow. So he not only does this, but he teaches it too. Michael currently holds the following post. He's a Clinical Director for Women's and Children's Health, George Hospital Executive Director for the Royal Hospital for Women. He's a Fertility Society of Australia president. He's the Australian and New Zealand Society of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility vice chairman and the CREI subspecialty committee, RANZ. C-O-G. Now, don't ask me what R-A-N-Z-C-O-G actually stands for. I'm guessing Australia, New Zealand is in there, but that's not something that I know. So, check that out. Today, we go deep into understanding exactly what IVF is. Where have we come from over the last 40 years? And what are the improvements that have occurred in the technology and success rates, etc.? Then we talk about the new technological opportunities that are in front of us, and in particular in the IVF and reproductive space, as well as some of the ethical issues that they potentially raise. So really fascinating there. We also talk about the falling fertility rates. Now, this is an episode you definitely want to listen to if you are about to or you're actively trying to conceive. There is some great information that you may already be aware of, but if not, you definitely want to listen to this. But I would also say, if you're not actively out there or considering or even in need of IVF, I would still encourage both men and women who just better want to understand this incredible technology, as well as what's happening with both male and female fertility around the world to listen in. So let's just get straight into it. So I'm really excited for today's episode because we are joined by Professor Michael Chapman, who has generously said I can call him Prof because that's how all his friends refer to him. So I'll be referring to him as Prof. And the reason I'm excited is at the time of recording, it is, I believe, in a week or so, a month's time, the first IVF baby is turning 40. Is that right?
0: Yeah, 40 years ago, um, this baby was born in the UK, made front page headlines because it was the first test tube baby. It brought with it a huge amount of controversy that you could make a baby in a test tube. At that point in time, probably the public was 80% against it, if you asked the public, that we were playing with nature and we shouldn't be doing it. It was a culmination of nearly 20 years of research from, from two or three groups around the world, one in Australia, who, who actually just missed out on having the first IVF baby, they had an ectopic pregnancy before this one was actually, Louise Brown was conceived. Um, and But the boys in um, in Cambridge, uh, Steptoe and Edwards uh, made it all happen. And even at the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, of which Steptoe was a was a senior member, he got held down by other gynecologists saying it was a fraud. Wow. We've come a long way in that time. It's now estimated at over 7 million babies worldwide have resulted from the IVF process. Wow, that's uh, that's amazing. Here in Australia, um, we are over 200,000 babies, uh, which if you think of a large provincial town like Hobart, we would have populated that city mm. uh, over that period of time. So it's um, a major contribution. We are 4% of all births in this country. Wow. In Japan, it's 5%. Uh, many other countries, it's it's only 1% or 2%. But even in the States, where there's not much funding from the public pocket, uh, it's getting up towards 2% of the population. And that's a big population.
1: Wow. And you you touched on a couple of things there. I mean, one, I know you've been involved in you know fertility care for, was it going on 35 years, I think I read.
0: Yeah, I, did, I put my first embryos back at the end of 1985. Wow. Which
1: is before I was born. <laughs> That's fantastic. And, and, you know, the other thing, though, like you touched on is just how much of a controversy it was back then. What are we seeing today? Is there st- still as much controversy or even any controversy around IVF as it
0: stands today? There's always controversy about IVF today. <laughs> <Gotcha>. <laughs> no, the basic concept of taking a sperm and an egg, fertilizing them outside the body, and putting that back. I think everybody. Well, virtually everybody but the Catholic Church sees it uh, as a major step forward in medical technology. It's enabling people who weren't previously able to have babies to have babies. Hmm. Where we get into trouble, and, and you know, I'm sure we're going to talk about it, is the ethical edges that the, that there are uh, going forward. But they were the ethical edges we had. Thirty years ago, when, as I say, the vast majority regarded it as as a, as a biological experiment that would probably go wrong, and we were all terrible, terrible people to be involved in it. But that's evolved. It's a the acceptance of IVF actually is a that change in attitude in the community is probably one of the rare of times that in a generation you can move, a, or even half a generation, you can move a negative view to a positive view across a whole population. It's probably not so surprising because fertility is an essential part of our lives that, that to reproduce you know that's why god put us on the world to start with was to reproduce we've evolved that way and so to not be able to undertake that basic humanity humanitarian or human basic step in humanity real disaster for individuals yeah and you mentioned that you know we we were evolved to kind of
1: reproduce but i remember i saw or read in in uh, some of my research before this episode that you referred to the difference between rabbits and humans. So we've evolved to reproduce, but not very efficiently. Let's talk a little bit about that. Can you tell us that
0: kind of analogy? Yeah, rabbits and mice, when they come into season, the female comes into season and attracts by those pheromones, the male of their species, and they have intercourse, almost always a litter arises, that their fertility rate for that particular moment in time uh, is almost 100%. But what happens there is that they're dead within two to three years. You don't get a rabbit living for very long, or a, a mouse even less. What we, uh, as humans, however, uh, and our reproductive life, well, female reproductive life stretches, stretches from 13 to 45, a long, long, long period of reproduction and a coming-into-season, in a sense, um, it, uh, once every month, so that's uh, 12 times a year. If we got pregnant every time, we wouldn't be here today. The world would have been overrun uh, at, at a time when technology wasn't able to produce food production line sort of stuff that we've caught up with the capacity to, to deal with the current levels of population. Whatever whatever it is that causes evolution one of the things that we evolved uh, in such a way that we were inefficient reproducers, that the odds of a pregnancy in any one month of an egg being released for a a human, at most around 15%. In my view,
1: that's that's probably a misconception. I think a general View, I mean, maybe this was taught to us in high school in, in sex ed, but if anything, it was probably the other way that it was like, don't have sex because you'll fall pregnant. It was, it made you feel as if every time you had sex, you were going to get pregnant. I I think from an expectation, I'm sure what you do very much has a lot of managing people expectation. There is an expectation that every time they have sex, unprotected sex while they're fertile, they will, there's like a, a high chance of getting pregnant. But what you've said here, it's only 10 to 15%. That must be quite shocking to a lot of people.
0: It is, and, uh, and we do, you know, I do have to say that probably in a, my fertility clinic, uh, at least one in every three patients, I'm making that statement and I can see their the mind ticking over and saying, well, that's not what I thought it would be. You know? and, and, and so patients are turning up to their general practitioners at, you know, at two or three months of trying saying, oh... Terrible. I'm, I mean, must be infertile. I've only been trying for three months and I've been trying for three months. And you know, my sister got pregnant in the first cycle, and my best friend was taking the pill and she got pregnant. And I'm three months, and I'm, but in fact, by three months, the chances of being pregnant are not much more than 30%. And if they mm. stick with it, provided there's nothing else wrong with them, uh, by 12 months, that'll grow to 90% chance of being pregnant. There is a degree of patience. Mm. I think that's an important message. The younger society. <laughs> Patience is growing smaller Uh, and smaller. Impatience is we want something, we want it now. We probably, we, the medical profession has probably helped that because what we can do now, which our parent or my parents and your grandparents couldn't do, was contracept efficiently. The contraceptive pill in particular has meant that we can plan not to be pregnant, but the expectation is that we will be pregnant the moment we want to be, and that's not nature. Gotcha.
1: Yeah. And I think, as I said, I think that's a really important message for people to get because, I mean, that leads to the question of, I mean, you're heavily involved in, in IVF, but when every patient comes to you, do you instantly say they need IVF or do you point them in other directions?
0: Yeah, absolutely not. And that, and that singles out, I mean, I'm afraid across the world, IVF is being used far too soon. And that a little bit of patience will get exactly the same result for less money, uh, less pain, and l- in Australia, uh, less burden on the taxpayer. It's it's a problem. Um, you know, I mean, I, as president of the Fertility Society, I, I am very conscious of the fact that we we probably are doing too much IVF. That there are many other strategies. Of simply waiting is one of them, but simple therapies with tablets or with insemination. That really don't need to get patients straight into IVF. It's a problem, and and going forward, um, we'll, we'll talk about forward in the future in a little while. But but you know, I do worry that we're going going to go too far.
1: Mm, definitely. Well, yeah. I mean, it does seem like for a general population, you know, as a as a male in the general population, I feel like with when it comes to IVF, unless you have personally experienced fertility issues and you've then started to investigate your options and you've looked into IVF. I think a lot of people don't really understand and they think, oh, I'm having, I can't conceive IVF is my only option. So I think this is very interesting to know. I I saw in my research and you mentioned it, you know, there are tablets that the women can take which can help ovulation. Uh as you mentioned insemination, which can be for the men who maybe are having problems. So that's really interesting. So let's maybe talk about that. How exactly does IVF work? And maybe let's talk a bit about the history as well of how did we get to where we are now? Well,
0: it started out in in animal husbandry. Interesting name for it. Helping farmers produce better animals, so that their you know their prized bull was uh, able to to they were able to extract sperm and inseminate the cow with that sperm, and could fertilize multiple cows. <laughs> mm. um, then it was discovered you could actually take the eggs out of cows and actually create the embryo in the laboratory back in the nineteen late nineteen sixties. Uh, wow. That first happened. And then obviously then people thought, well, if you can do it for a, for a bull and a cow, um, and, uh, and the other, other area was horses, we're getting your best race horses. Why don't we see if we can do it in humans? And they, people struggled because the human is not either a horse or a, or a cow. And uh, the number of eggs was a problem because we don't multi-ovulate normally, whereas uh, those animals can. And their response to medication is different to the human. So they struggled for 10 to 15 years before uh, Louise Brown came along. The things that have happened since then in terms of technology uh, have changed. I mean, a woman going through IVF in 1980 uh, would have had blood tests done every day of their menstrual cycle. They would, to collect the eggs, they would have had laparoscopic surgery. So significant surgery with risks associated with it to to, to find the eggs. We now have vaginal ultrasound and really it's really a very simple uh, procedure to to actually extract the eggs. Tell my uh, junior doctors that I could teach monkeys to do an egg collection. And from the patient's perspective, medications that they took were twice daily medications of injections. Today, there are still injections, but they are very minor, uh, tiny needles, and there's even a drug now which is long-acting, so you don't need to take needles every day. So there have been major steps to make the burden of treatment for patients so much better. But in a laboratory, that's probably where the biggest changes have happened. That we've, we, If we think about it, what we're trying to do is mimic the fallopian tube where fertilization occurs naturally in the uterus. In the, in the human, and uh, also the conditions in the uterus when the egg, the embryo comes down the fallopian tube and lands in the uterus are five days after ovulation to attach and become a pregnancy. Those conditions have really taken 50 years to work out, but we're getting better and better. So we know, for instance, that the embryo needs more sugar in the first day or two and then should change over to, because it doesn't produce that, it's, its energy itself, and then it changes over to a different energy uh, processing uh, in the, in, after three days. We know that um, the, you know, we breathe oxygen in the ratios, nitrogen to oxygen, uh, of, the, of what's in the air. But in the uterus, there isn't the oxygen. Oxygen is only 8%. But we've been growing embryos at 20%. And surprise, surprise, we get much better embryos if we grow them at 8%. So they've been step by step, nothing, I suppose nothing hugely dramatic, Incremental increase, you know. The uterus is a very stable, dark environment uh, and uh, what we used to do was to take embryo- embryos in and out of incubators, where, which were shared by 30 other embryos, where this, the, the carbon dioxide, oxygen ratio went up and down as you open and closed the door, not to mention the temperatures. Surprise, surprise, when we developed a, a, um, an incubator that only took one person's embryos in a little box, Pregnancy rates went up another 5%. So all of those technological advances, none has been vastly dramatic, but certainly uh, when I started doing, well, in, in 1985 we would say to a patient you've got less than a 10% chance of pregnancy even in the young age group, but it was not nothing. Hmm. Today we're saying 40% in the younger age groups. That's the incremental change in 30-odd 30, 30 years. And has it come just from trial and error
1: or that, that's made these incremental changes or has it been high-level research that's
0: done it? Combination of both. I mean, some of it has been serendipity. One classic example of that is the, the technique which is now used by the majority of uh, women. not well, they don't use it but we use for them called intracytoplasmic sperm injection, ICSI. So where a single sperm is injected into the actual egg Mechanically, uh, uh, just after uh, we've collected the eggs, four hours after we've collected the eggs, there was a technique which had been used in animals for 25 years, where we used to put several sperm just under the egg shell and allow them them to penetrate the egg. Uh, called that was called Susie subzonal injection, <laughs> and uh, we we're very good with the accrements. Yeah, um, I can see that. The scientist, uh, a scientist in um, in Belgium. Palumbo is name of junior doctor at the time, junior researcher, wasn't, was a bit clumsy and pushed a sperm into an egg and lo and behold, Susie became ICSI and got a pregnancy published in the Lancet in 1992. Serendipity you know, It's now the technique used by, you know, in Australia about 65% of all oocytes are fertilized using the ICSI technique, which gets over, male problems. I mean, you can have, if you get 10 eggs, you only need 10 sperm, not 15 million the sperm.
1: Yeah. And, and as I understand it, you know, one of the issues that faces fertility from the men's side is is a low sperm count, right? And so being able to have only needing 10 sperm probably gets over that issue for a lot of people.
0: Absolutely. Because yeah, previously we were saying, mm, sorry, you're going to fuse donor sperm, donor, good sperm from another man. So that makes a
1: big difference then because it's now your child as opposed to a donor sperm's child.
0: Correct, correct. So th- th- that was a huge step forward, and and it said it, it was ch- it was a chance event initially. The laboratory is, but the, as I say, that's one part of the laboratory. But but this understanding the culture medium, a lot of that has been at high level mm. uh, science behind it, uh, understanding how embryos grow and um, and what the best conditions are. I'm sure along that way, right, that
1: there has been. A greater awareness or a changing in the culture of population, as you, as we mentioned, already touched on before, it was highly controversial. Now it's quite accepted, except maybe by some religious groups. Has that had an impact on more funding and other things happening in the space of IVF? Like, how has that impacted th- this change? How has that impacted maybe funding into improving the technology?
0: Well, certainly uh, getting governments on board. Uh, in terms of supporting people. And it still happens in the United States. There are some states where there is some funding, but the vast majority it's not. So they have to pay the the full full fare. And
1: how much does an IVF cost? I mean, I have no idea. What, what, what are the costs
0: involved? A good, uh, you know, in a well-resourced service, in other words, Good number of nurses, counsellors, laboratory people, scientists. Uh, we're talking um, in Australia. Uh, the cost is around ten or twelve thousand dollars. In the states, it's probably more like fifteen thousand dollars. I'm not quite sure why the difference, but that's. Oh, I know part of it's the drugs. That's right, Our, we're lucky in Australia that PBS pays for the drugs. Yeah, it's a significant amount of money for someone who's earning an average income, even. Getting governments on board to subsidise uh, has been a major step. So in Australia f- since 1990, um, the government uh, has accepted that infertility is a medical condition, and, of course, that's the big step. And then secondly, that IVF is no longer experimental. It's mainstream treatment. So why shouldn't it be treated like any other medical benefit um, uh, treatment? or treatment for which Medicare will will contribute, and so they put the, So the government puts in about fifty percent of that cost. Mm, that definitely
1: makes it more accessible. I'm guessing for for many people. Uh, I think it's interesting, as you said, like around the the was it twelve to fifteen thousand dollar mark. There, you know, and that's just for one attempt, right? Like, there's no there's no guarantees. If someone requires multiple attempts, it can really add up to a lot. Is there any difference in price based on the age of the woman?
0: No, <laughs> no. A cycle is a cycle is a cycle. Going back to the numbers again, um, while it's ten to twelve thousand dollars, the patient will actually get back five and a half, six thousand. So in Australia, yeah, in Australia. Uh, in other countries, as I say, it's um, much much more expensive. With there's no government subsidy, and then there are the Scandinavian and uh, Holland and Belgium who offer three free cycles. Oh wow! If you're under forty years of age and you've been trying for uh, at least 12 months to get pregnant. So they've put in uh, boundaries for that uh, subsidy, and, and it is only three cycles. I mean, that's a really interesting way to do it. I think that's that's great, making it accessible for people.
1: This kind of leads, I suppose, into we've talked a lot about why they people are going for IVF, and we've talked on the fact that it's not necessarily needed in all cases, and some people just need to be patient or look at some other options. Let's talk a little bit now about where things are headed. If we think about these micro incremental changes that have, I'm sure, have reduced the cost, have improved the rates of success. What, what's kind of happening in the industry right now? What do you see? Do you think we could ever get to a guaranteed 100% success rate like you know, many years in the
0: future? Or do you think that's not medically possible? Where are we headed? <laughs> no, we'll never get to 100%. And the reasons for that is uh, basically biology. Why is it only 15% per cycle? How what are the, what are the breaks that are, that are in there that, that prevent us from laying less fertile in nature? And it starts with the egg. It almost finishes with the egg, in fact, because the sperm contribution in terms of success or causing failure is actually a, a, a small part, probably 5%. We can blame the sperm. Almost always it is the, it is the genetic makeup of the egg that we know that the eggs, are, even of women in their 20s to 30s, uh, 50% of them are genetically abnormal. Wow. For some reason, uh, we've evolved of, of having a slightly more complicated process to get to um, the right number of chromosomes. And, and that's one of the areas of ac- of, of academia that uh, is really high tech and, and has exploded since we've been able to do genetic testing to down to the level of the, the DNA and the, and the bits of, uh, that make up the DNA. And what, what, we, what we increasingly are, are finding is that the egg, if you've got 50% chance of, talk about a 30-year-old, 50% of her eggs are abnormal. Now, they may fertilize, or they may not if they're really bad, but if they do fertilize, they uh, still will carry that genetic abnormality which will declare itself either by the embryo not growing on Fertilizing but not starting to divide its cells, or getting to a blastocyst, which is the, the stage just before attaching to the uterus. And when we biopsy those embryos, even then, 50% of them are abnormal at that age. How do you change that? Uh, unless you can pick an egg from the patch that is of genetically good quality, uh, that will be the only way. And at the moment, we don't have the technology to, to be able to pick that. Could we have the technology one
1: day in the future to actually change the genetics of an embryo and make it you know, fixing the problems?
0: Yes, we do. That's on the cusp at the moment. There's something called, I don't know whether you've talked about it yet, but it's the, something called CRISPR. Uh, we haven't talked about it yet, but yes, I'm aware of it. Yeah, so uh, in bacteria, bacteria have the capacity to repair itself. The simple DNA that they have, if a virus enters their the, the bacteria cell, they recognise it as abnormal, and they have an enzyme like a pair of scissors that can snip out a segment which is foreign to them, and those, and then replace it with normal genetic material. So that's now being applied to human cells, both in in the cancer research area, for obvious reasons, in embryos as well. The the group in China, there's a group in China who 18 months ago published the first human embryos for this to be done to get rid of thalassemia. So a a single gene defect that we know about, and uh, they were able to chop it out and uh, replace it. The only problem was the scissors weren't just, um, were a bit more random, and they caused a whole pile of <laughs> other abnormalities. But, so, but technology is not there yet. If we think about where it's going to head to, we're
1: already on the cusp of doing that. So it could happen.
0: Yeah, so it could happen absolutely. So we may move towards the perfect egg, egg but then there's also uh, the uterus itself, and and the lining of the womb plays a vital part in that process. And again, we're learning more and more. Again, through genetics, we're understanding there are now Fingerprinting of the cells at the time of implantation of the egg that seem to be more optimistic in, in an ongoing pregnancy situation, but again that 's technology that 's not yet at its uh, um, development a stage that really can be properly applied, although around the world there are people selling tests for these desperate couples uh, when everything else seems fine, um, you can send a sample of your lining of the womb to Spain. And fifteen hundred dollars, they'll tell you whether it was in synchrony or not uh, with the timing that you that the doctor thought. of. Randomised controlled trials have not yet proven a benefit. But, yeah, I
1: was just for for those you know listening, the look on his face shows that he's sceptical and not
0: recommending that you you necessarily go and do that. and do it? No, absolutely not. And and, and sadly, I mean, one of the the serious issues in infertility is that the desperation that uh, couples have. To be to have that wanted baby means they will do things that are unproven uh, and expensive on the basis that somebody said it might work mm. there's a classic example at the moment again the immunology side of things you know the, the is half foreign to the mother because of the, it carries the father's genetics, so the body does something very strange in allowing it to be there so there's an interplay in the immunological system between tolerance. I've never thought about that
1: yeah that's that's very true
0: and that balance we really have never understood quite why it happens but we're learning the genetics of today are, are showing us the way because we can actually not measure the cells but measure the products of the cells and have some idea about what that interplay is but at the back of immunology there are people giving drugs giving intralipid infusion, for instance, charging $1,000 for an emulsion that costs $14 on the, on the pharmacy shelf uh, on the basis that it, it suppresses immunology, the immune cells. Mm. Does it work? There's no randomized controlled trial. But it's very, I'm really very upset that how many women will believe this. Last chance maybe people you get it very,
1: as you mentioned, the emotions are high.
0: Yeah, yeah, and if you're spending four thousand, why not spend five thousand? And maybe it might work for you, but uh, the medical profession, I'm afraid, we are breeding off that insecurity and the, that frustration of not getting the pregnancy you want. One issue we must talk about about the future is is the sociological change that's also occurred in the last two decades, uh, no, three decades. We'll call it. I put the blame at the feet of Jermaine Greer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the free the freedom of women to do more of what they want
1: mm.
0: has led to women's careers. We can argue this. I mean, I'm, I'm very pro women, but what? It, but 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 its consequences I think need to be thought through. My grandmother was probably almost certainly was got married, had a job, got married, had a baby at twenty two, twenty three, twenty four when it was very mm. easy to get pregnant and there wasn't much choice because marriage. You know, there was intimacy with marriage and there wasn't contraception of any note. So what we can do today is put, though, that fertility off and off and off as you become a school teacher, headmistress. Oh, now at 37, I probably should think about having a baby. In addition to that, men are also responsible. (laughs) And uh, certainly the research shows that the decision-making in terms of a couple having a baby is actually more importantly driven by the male. They want their car. They want their house. They want their career to be sorted out before we embark on having a baby. There's a statistic that says that 50% of men are still at home at the age of 27 in Australia. So they're not going to link up and have babies at 23, 24. Uh, So we've got this whole whole host of of women and, and men moving through the 30s and into the 40s.
1: Do you think people are doing that because they see IVF as a solution? They're like, "Oh, I can
0: wait that long because I've got options like IVF available to me." Unfortunately, yes, and and media doesn't help that. You know, media enjoys um Janet Jackson having a baby at 50. Uh, now whether it was her egg or not, they don't tell you, but it's hmm. almost 99.99% certain that it was a donor egg. She carried the baby, so it looked like hers. False hope is uh is is there and as I say to patients who come to me at forty, you know, um, the odds are you're never going to have a baby. I can do everything I can. You can throw every resource that this as that you can, but you're not. you've got less than a forty percent chance of going home with a baby. And people don't know that. I mean, I I try to educate. I know, mean, I I, um, I, ha- I have a podcast that um, goes out every week, and I'm sure every third week I talk about older women and their chances of success because education to me is everything.
1: Yeah. And so for those listening, if you want to check out his podcast, you can find it. It's called The IVF Journey. You can find it on iTunes, all the different places. Highly recommend you check that out for sure, especially if you're... Is it really for people who are in the middle of
0: trying to conceive or who, who is the ideal audience? From the beginning, no. People who are even thinking about when should I start to try. I and mean, We try and cover you know, pre-conception, pre, pre-fertility even, because that's 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 vital as well. We're talking about some
1: really important things here. That I hadn't really thought so much about that society change. That You're right, with people delaying, putting it off. That is, they're putting their hope, I suppose. I mean, we all did. it. I remember as a kid, I was like, Oh, I won't need to learn to drive because we'll have driverless cars and cars will be flying and stuff by the time that... Now, obviously, when I came time, I had to learn to drive because that it's now happening now, but it didn't happen as fast as I thought it would. So there are probably people thinking, maybe some of them are listening or they know people, who are thinking? Oh, that, you know. Even if the technology is not there now, I'm 30 now. But by the time I'm 40, the technology will be there to, you know, improve my chances of conceiving. And I think we you've pointed out that we can't rely on that. Um, it's small incremental changes that are, are happening, especially when we're talking medical field. There's a lot of regulation. There's a lot of things that have testing that needs to go on. It's not quite like the the tech boom we've seen in in the in the business space, if you like
0: we can't make mistakes it, it would be a horrible event to uh, have, do some form of treatment that ended up with children with two heads it would just destroy the world for everybody and not only that individual affected people but it would uh, the, the all those people that have criticized ivf for, for over the years would be in there like Flynn. and they'd be proved right it's all it's it's it's, it's horrible i think there's some important things we do need to touch on
1: before we We kind of start to wrap up. designer babies, you right, the the ability for people to choose gender, but then going past that, because I know that technically the, the the ability to choose genders is possible as of now. In Australia, I believe it's
0: not legal. You're not allowed to do it. For social reasons. You can do it for medical conditions that are carried through one sex or another, like hemophilia, but not uh, not as well, "I've had two boys, I want a girl." got it, right
1: you know so that that's definitely that's a trend that society is probably over time going to change its stance on that and possibly demand it there's ethical questions there and the other one that i want to touch on is i read that i think it was over in europe or somewhere there some scientists have actually tried to conceive or they successfully conceived with using three donors
0: yeah. Well, so, yeah. And the, in fact, there's a Senate inquiry going on at the moment from driven by the mitochondrial disease uh, lobby, which uh, very fairly saying there is a way to avoid these metabolic diseases that kill infants in the first year or three of life that can be diagnosed as a carrier states. And what can be done is that the mother and the father contribute their gametes, but the mother who's the carrier potentially of the disease. Her mitochondria gets swapped for a woman who is not affected by the disease. So there are that's why the three parent comes from the mother, the father, and then this small amount of, of mitochondrial DNA, which comprises less than two percent of the baby's total genetic makeup. So the you know ninety eight percent their mother and father, but the extra two percent means they avoid this these terrible diseases, the mitochondrial uh, diseases. So it's it's legal in the United Kingdom and we're going through a process at the moment of reviewing whether it should become legal in Australia. We have the technology and while it's a relatively rare condition, it's something we could eradicate.
1: Where do you fit on this? Where do you stand? Obviously, it's your personal opinion, not necessarily maybe what the medical representation are, but do you believe that as a society we should have the choice or do you
0: think that it's we should keep it just for medical reasons? Where do you feel that? Well, the mitochondrial story, I think all doctors would believe that that's a way forward, provided it's proven to be safe. And there is still a little question mark about that, that. Can you get really get rid of all the mitochondria that were affected and are the ones coming in really going to be all of them? So we need that safety issue to be finally resolved. Uh, it will come. On gender balancing, I'm, I've been a public advocate of gender balancing for the last five years. I, I personally wrote to the in H&MRC when they called for submissions, saying that, you know, I see patients who will not have another baby unless they can choose that opposite sex. And I think with a prep, you know, with full counselling in clinics that are controlled well, and that's my worry because people go overseas to suboptimal clinical areas expecting a great success but don't come back, they don't come back with the sex they want, but more importantly, they don't come back at all with a baby because the technology is not as good. But they've spent a lot of money on, it, and we can do it in Australia. Uh, going beyond that, certainly the technology into the future. If we can, if Chris, if we can get CRISPR working, <laughs> we could be taking the, the genes that, that um, control eye or hair color and and substitute those in. You, it could be possible, but a it will be expensive, and, and and we've got a long way to go. I think in terms of that, but it, it's there. But again. Society's got to make those decisions. At the moment, society is against gender balancing. You know, mm. M- Morgan Poll showed eighty percent said no in Australia. Are we talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so society determines the progress of these things. We, I mean, the, the scientists and the doctors throw out the challenges <laughs> as, yes. as as science progresses. Society has to decide whether
1: it's okay or not. Yeah, and that's with all all the technologies, right? That it, it's all. Driverless cars, we're having the same debate about the technology's there. Are we going to do it? And my concern, wherever you may sit, is that society changes its views over time uh, as every new generation comes in. So it's hard. How do you set the rules? Because they'll probably change over time anyway. But then what's the problem? It's true. It, it, it depends. Well, it depends on where that, as someone who likes to think multiple steps ahead, you know, I wonder if, if everyone starts picking their eye color, hair color. I don't know how I'd feel about it if I had the option. But I just think if all of a sudden, every human on the planet was doing that, how does that impact the evolution of, of man? And I'm sure maybe it does it in a good way. But then there are certain many things. If we go through history, there are many times in history that we did things like introduce foxes and uh, all sorts of things to, that we thought was a great idea and then in hindsight we've gone, that was a terrible
0: idea. I'm an optimist. and uh, The society will work itself through these things and if there are problems, it will set new uh, boundaries if that's what is thought to be the, the case. And I, don't, I, 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 I still think the majority of people will or the population will determine in the, in the fertility area and, and the, and the um, adjuncts around it. And um, they'll determine the boundaries, and they'll be given every opportunity to. I fine, I don't have a problem.
1: Which is fantastic. I mean, to to hear that you're so vocal and, and public about that. I mean, there are some that probably wouldn't. Uh, they'd keep their opinion to themselves. So, thank you so much for sharing. I think that, you know, we we've talked a lot about the history of where we've come from and and what's happening. We've now talked a bit about where we're headed. I and mean, if we bring it back to today. If there is someone listening who is right now trying to conceive or they know someone trying to conceive, like what are the action steps? What What is available to them today? What is the steps that they should probably look to go through? Apart from start listening to your podcast, of course,
0: um, <laughs> of course. what should they do? They need to find uh, a general practitioner who is knowledgeable. And I'm afraid I churn out medical students, you know, thousands over the years, and I would say very few of them uh, have the depth of understanding uh, to deal with infertility. Uh, so, th- if you are trying and you've been trying for six, twelve months, that'd be my first comment. But, you know, don't don't rush into believing that it's going to happen tomorrow. So, six to twelve months. There's kind of the the
1: time frame, and then consider your other options. Where to go?
0: Yeah, then go to your GP and ask the GP to be referred to a fertility specialist. That's not just any general obstetrician gynaecologist. There is a difference between people who are experienced in the field uh, and the people who've just done their basic specialist training. Indeed, in Australia, we have something called the Certificate in Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility, CREI, Uh, and around Australia, there are 70-odd of us. Who have done an extra three years of training purely in infertility and, and hormones in the female, uh, and if you have an opportunity to have someone in the is it, accessible to you, that's where I would be saying your GP should be sending you, and uh, you can find those through the, the Royal College site or even uh, on the, the website of the CReIs. But they're the people with the depth of of, of knowledge to give you the right answers, not rush you into IVF not say go away and do nothing, but to actually lead you through a rational stepwise approach to getting pregnant. The vast majority will get pregnant. You know, I followed up 500 patients that I saw um, fire now nearly 10 years ago and uh, nearly 80% of them have ended up with babies if they were under 40 when they came to see me. So it's it happens many, many times. I will do IVF eventually and still not get pregnancy, and then I'll ring me three months later and say I'm pregnant. twenty five percent of women, in fact, who go through IVF will be pregnant on their own in the next two years. Wow, that's an interesting statistic.
1: So all right, so basically patients, we've kind of talked about patients, then go to your doctor and ask to be referred to an actual specialist who knows what they're doing, who can give you a plan and review your case and look at what's going on, because I think I, I you know one of the most important things you mentioned, Either earlier or in in previous research I did, that one of the first steps is to diagnose what's the cause. Why is there an actual medical issue here, or or is is there not? Um, and so so that's that's really great for anyone listening. Um, I know it's probably a very emotional time if if you're going through those challenges or if you've been through it. Um, that's fantastic that you've shared that. Thank you so much, Prof. I want to touch on the question I ask everyone. You've already touched on it, but. When we look at the future of humanity, so we can look at and talk about your space of where you're in IVF and fertility, but also on the grander scale, and you look at all the changes happening around the globe with humanity and society and technology, are you optimistic and excited? Are you cautious and
0: possibly pessimistic? Where do you fit and why? Well, I'm a, I've always been an optimist, so I, I always look on the right side. I mean, there are some clouds on the horizon. I think reasonably convincing now that, for instance, male fertility is declining. Sperm counts would appear to be falling over the last thirty or forty years, and increasingly, data is mounting that environmental factors, our carelessness in society in relation to plastics, in particular, and some of the pesticides, potentially, are having an impact on on our fertility. And you know, if that slippery slope continues, then we've got a real a real problem. Uh, I'm not sure that that will be the case because we're now becoming aware of it. But, you know, there are things like, you know, you probably shouldn't be drinking out of plastic bottles that, you know, while each one is a minuscule effect uh, mounted over time, there is evidence that there is a relationship between semen quality and and the mounting of these up in your body. Interfering with, um, they're called endocrine disruptors. They interfere with the receptors for male hormones. Uh, some of them bind the same way as male hormone and um, and therefore block the normal effects of, of androgen. To me, that's a worry. And if it's happening in men, I, I can't believe it's not also happening in, in women and the quality of their eggs, although it, nobody's really documented that uh, trend to date. I suppose the other so- is the sociological issue of Getting together as a partnership later on in life, and then putting off uh, childbearing till later on. So that's another area. But you know, on both yeah. of those fronts, as an IVF doctor, I see a very optimistic future <laughs> for IVF because <laughs> we can overcome many of those problems. But that's being uh, perhaps too materialistic. But uh, you know, in general across the world, I mean, there are worrying um, birth rates around the world. In Europe, you know, that's way below replacement, and so you're getting this. Top heavy because we're getting better at keeping old people healthy, mm. I'm very much in favor of it at my age. Uh, what uh, we're getting is a top heavy um, demographic with very yes. few children. I mean, China's recognized that. That's what you know, they've moved from the one China policy to allow two, and um, which has produced an amazing growth of IVF in the last five years in China, just astronomical wow. because. Couples who've got a 20-year-old child who are now 40 are desperate to have that second child they always want and are heading off to IVF units. Interesting.
1: And, and so, I mean, the, to, to put a, a counter to that uh, thing, uh, episode four of our season one, we talked with Dr. Mel Hart about an overpopulation issue we have on the planet. So I can see on multiple sides that, it, you know, some would argue that this declining birth rate and not replacing everyone may actually be a good thing.
0: I'm not totally convinced by that. I mean, I I think, um, I I remember as a university student, there was something called uh, the Zero Population. It was a a movement run Derek Llewellyn-Jones ran out of Sydney. We said we were going to be, you know, I can remember we were going to be starving by by the turn of the century, which was 30 years later. We're still not starving. So, you know, we actually are capable as a humanity to to, um, provide For increasing numbers by agricultural advances, some of which are genetically engineered, so I'm not so sure uh, that's a problem. My concern is there won't be the people, the the sort of the thirty, the the twenty to forties, to actually run organisations to make life okay for me in my old age. Mm, Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing, and uh, it's
1: been fantastic chatting with you uh if people want to find you apart from your podcast where else can
0: they find you consult privately in the fertility arena uh, with ivf australia at Cogra uh, in southern sydney and you can contact the, me through ivf australia. go to the website ivf australia and uh, you will find me there
1: perfect we'll make sure there's links to all that in the show notes thank you so much for joining us it's been an absolute uh, privilege and I, we could have kept talking probably for another hour or more, but I know you're you're a busy man. You just came from a surgery before this. So thank you so much for your time and um, we'll hopefully maybe talk to you soon and hear about the latest updates in the industry. Happy to. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Future of Humanity podcast. To download the latest episode and find the transcript and various resources mentioned in today's episode, visit our website at foh.show. That's F-O-H as in Future of Humanity, and show as in S-H-O-W. You can also, via our website, contact me with any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, so please do reach out. Now, if you haven't already subscribed, you can find the links to subscribe on all your favorite platforms at foh.show slash subscribe. That's foh.show slash subscribe. And more importantly, if you'd like to continue the conversation from today's episode and connect with other listeners, then you can join our free community at foh.show slash community. foh.show slash community. I look forward to seeing you there.